0: We all feel better,
1: better
0: in the dark. We all feel better in the
1: dark. Kick your ass! And since he's my friend, I'll have to kick your ass too. Yeah. First you give us the stupid Poughkeepsie cake yeah, I mean, bullshit ripoff because he's my boy. Yeah. 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 Check it. Let me tell you about these two dudes from Brooklyn You won't view movies the same way again Every two weeks you get something new And hate it or love it, they break it down for you Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson been writing for years, got respect from the peers. Watch these movies for all benefit. Don't watch watching Halloween, love Tom rather spit. How about a couple musicals or maybe Dennis Quaid? But Tom's on a rant, directors be afraid. Episodes classic, don't get it twisted. And from the start, these two have been gifted. Tom loves Kristen and Derek loves Pam. Tom hates heroes and Derek can't stand. Remakes of movies that don't need remade. Watch out studios, they won't be played. Give it up for T, and give it up for D Coolest guys from Brooklyn this side of Jay-Z My name's B-hyphen and it's time to start Cause we all feel better, better, better in the dark
0: This is Derek Ferguson. And this is the gruesome Thomas DJ. (laughs) We should have horror movie TV host
1: names. Disgusting Derek Ferguson. and I'm Doctor Disgust you know, I'm Thomas Disgusto. Yeah, but you know something, you couldn't go through the whole episode in that voice.
0: That's true, yes.
1: But I love those old horror movie hosts. Oh yeah. There was something that was lost when we became so quote unquote sophisticated and we moved away from that yeah. thing. Like Zachary and those yeah. guys, remember?
0: Doctor Morgus mm-hmm. out of New Orleans. Goulardi, of course, out of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. And you know who Goulardi's son is, Ooh. don't you? Who? Wes Anderson.
1: Oh, okay. You know, I did hear that someplace.
0: Yeah, Not to be confused, of course, with The Son of Goularty, which <laughs> was another actor who took over Goularty's show when <laughs> Ernie Anderson retired from mm-hmm. it. I think the last of those great was, of course, Elvira. Elvira. Oh, yeah. Although, if you go online and do a little Googling, there's a revival. People are going on public access television, mm-hmm. and they're also doing online with public domain horror films. Yeah,
1: and they're doing their own horror movie host shows. Oh, that is so cool!
0: So we um, ought to do that one day. Maybe we should. But
1: and of course, everybody remembers. The famous chiller with the six-fingered hand coming
0: out of the swamp and picking up the lettuce. Go on our message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com and we expect you to join up as well. If you look around, James Dye has posted links... To websites that feature the history of Chiller Theater, Creature Feature, and all the great New York City horror
1: movie shows. Creature Feature, yeah. Fright Night, which, oh yeah, everybody remembers that. This is all a prelude to, of course, our annual... Obscure horror, horror movies episode.
0: For those of you who are just joining us, because we've joined the Earth2.net we've, community, we've jumped the wall, we've defected, we've, yes. <laughs>
1: we've gone over to the dark oh, side. It's just that
0: they found <laughs> somebody found us a better house to live in, but so to this, speak. This is true. And it sure helps that I don't have to worry about uploading and downloading and doing all that other preparation. I just have to make the damn thing and say, "Hey, Mike, something's coming for you," and Mike takes care of it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. We love you. So, in a masculine type of way, of course. So, this is something that we've done ever since we started the show, when we were still a part of Sci-Fi Fan Radio back in 2007. Wow. Where, around Halloween time, we do a potpourri show, and a potpourri show is when we come up with a general subject. Derek chooses three films, I choose three films, we discuss it, and the films are chosen as much for the possibility of the
1: conversation they'll generate, as much as because we like them. Let me explain. Halloween comes around. Mm -hmm. Everybody starts doing their thing. They have their Halloween parties. Or maybe they're just laying around the house. And you pick out the movies that you want to see. What we try to do in this episode is to give you an alternative to the typical thing like Nightmare on Elm Street. Halloween. Boo. Saw. Boo! Not that we don't like
0: some of these, these franchises In fact, you can go back to episode 10 And see what we thought of the Halloween franchise
1: Which Tom did His, his supreme contribution to <laughs> Better in the Dark Was watching all of the Halloween movies Well, I both. do think that was
0: one of the breakout episodes That was one of the episodes that people came to And started looking at specifically Oh, this is good And started downloading the other yeah. episodes Yeah, that was a breakout episode for us Nightmare on Elm Street Which Derek will be doing Right Although, I'll, don't worry, I'll watch them all with you
1: No, well, you Um, you can if you want to. I just, I just, I I just watched about half of the
0: Halloween movies. (laughs) I didn't watch all of them. Yeah, Um, although we will be doing a Nightmare on Elm Street thing. Next year to tie in with the remake that's coming out from Platinum Dunes. <sighs> Starring, of course, the cousin of my dear friend, Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Jackie Earl
1: Haley. Right. That was going to be the episode this year, folks. The yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. But when we found out about the remake was being done, Billy yeah. Bob Thornton was yeah. so it was, it was, attached attached to was originally attached, attached to it. it. Yeah.
0: Of course, the thing that scares me about this remake is that, unlike in the original where Nancy and all her friends were kind Kind of timeless, even though they had 80s hairstyles and stuff. The Nancy in this one is supposedly emo goth kid who makes her own clothing. And mm. the Johnny Depp character is a podcaster. So it's going to be very anchored into... 2010.
1: Because it was some asshole in the back room said, well, we have to make it relevant for today's audience. Relevant this son of a bitch. That's why some of those movies back then, you could still watch it. If you notice, they stayed away from any particular fashion or slang or anything that would date the material. Nothing dates a movie faster than trying to be current. Because by the time the damn movie comes out, whatever was current then is not current now. It's Jackie or Haley. We're going to go see it. Mm-hmm. I know you're going to go see it. Everybody's going to go see it. And by the time it comes out, we will have the nightmare on oh, Elm Street. and uh, Michael Bay? Bite me. Why Michael Bay? Because
0: Michael Bay's in charge of Platinum Dunes. Oh, okay? okay. Bite me very much. You and Megan Fox both.
1: But hey, listen. I've heard a lot of good things about this movie that she's got coming out. Jennifer's body.
0: Okay, I think there's a problem with a movie where you have Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. And you cast the better looking... Better Acting Girl
1: has the secondary character. Yeah, but Megan Fox, of course, is the hottest name out there right now as far as movies are. Oh, her, her dumb as a box of rocks. rocks. Yeah, but I don't blame her for that. It's not her fault that they're trying to promote. Remember, this is the same thing they did a few years back with Jessica Alba. Right. Where they stuck her in everything and they was trying to promote. And where is she now? Doing well, we like, L'Oreal commercials. Exactly. It's been like two years since we've seen her in anything major.
0: Well, I mean, to be fair, she I think she's got something coming out this fall. Mm. And L'Oreal doesn't pick anybody off the street i'm right. sure she's being very well compensated for those oh yeah,
1: sure sure but what i'm just saying is that you can't blame the actress right. because they're being promoted as the next hot thing and but when like you that.
0: get stuff um, like michael bay saying oh megan fox is my muse fuck you michael michael bay michael well,
1: fox. well well no
0: mike we like michael j
1: fox well, listen, we don't like you michael well bay. listen it's michael bay who makes the loudest movies in the world. Look, as far as I'm concerned... I will be brutally honest. On the face of it, when it comes to Michael Bay, our opinion doesn't matter shit. Right, his movies his make movies money. His movies make money. And second of all, you got the knuckleheads out there that's going to go see anything with Transformers on it mm-hmm. as long as he's doing it. So as long as right. they keep going, paying for it, mm-hmm. hey, who are we? As far as I'm concerned, you can take Michael
0: Bay and Eli Roth and a bunch of other... Thieves. Brett Ratner. Brett Rat? well, yeah, okay, Brett
1: Ratner. We can throw him on there. And just put him on a ship... Set sail on the ship. And you know the thing about Brett Ratner? I actually like the movie he made. Did you ever see the one after the sunset? I have not seen that one. That's a damn good movie. But however, he screws up by making these dumbass Rush Hour movies which I can't stand. But
0: you know what the thing is with Brett Ratner? He's one of these people who doesn't mind being a director for hire. That's you know, true. that's the thing we gotta keep in mind. I'm sure he has these great stories he wants to tell but he keeps getting sidelined because people go Brett, we need your help. We want to put this movie out. You're Matthew Vaughn just backed out on us. Can you yeah. do just, X3? Or, or Brian
1: Singer just jibbed yeah. Can you do yeah. X3?
0: Can you, do Red Dragon, and Brett goes, sure guys, because And again, because he brings
1: in a movie on time, and Under usually budget. on the budget, exactly. Right. And they make money. Exactly. So as long as he does that, he's always going to have a job right. in Hollywood. Anyway,
0: we digress. We digress. We're, we're over in Albuquerque now. We want to get back to Brooklyn. So, the way we do this, so we each pick three films, and we switch off and we talk about each film, and these are all horror films. Duh, because it's Halloween. Ooh.
1: Who wants to start? I'll go first. You go first. A little bit of recent history here. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to digress that much. Recently on our message board, which can be located at betterinthedark.proboards.com, we've been having this on and off conversation about a great, great man. The British actor Oliver Reed, right, who some people have been emailing me and commenting on the board about they got turned on to a wonderful movie called The Assassination Bureau. And I was one of those people. Starring Oliver Reed and Diana Rigg. And if you haven't seen it yet, right after this podcast is over, go out, put it on your Netflix queue or go to FYE or wherever you gotta go, but get yourself a copy of The Assassination Bureau. But we've been talking on and off on the board about it, and actually those discussions, we're going to do an Oliver Reed episode for his birthday. Right, we're probably going to tie it just like we did with the Dennis Quaid episode. Right, we're going to discuss our favorite Oliver Reed films. This movie that I want to talk about is a movie that I am firmly convinced that Stephen King... This was one of the influences of yeah. him doing The Shining, because there's a lot of similarities. And once I get into the plot, folks, mm-hmm. I think that you'll see the similarities to The Shining. Well, like I said, I think maybe a little bit
0: behind the curtain. We tried recording this episode before, and about 20 minutes in, Audacity kicked out, because Audacity sucks. Fuck you, Audacity. Well, then why do we use it? Because it's the one we have. Okay, then, so don't jinx okay. us, man. Don't jinx us. <laughs> Tough love, man. (laughs) Enjoy it. But I don't think that the movie influenced King. And let's be honest, King is one of these authors who is very upfront about his influences. Right. But the novel, which came out in 73. Written by Robert Morasco he might have liked it and decided to do a little tributes
1: here and there. Yeah. Burnt Orphans, 1976 horror movie directed by Dan Curtis who we will forever revere because he gave us Kolchak the Night Stalker as well as
0: Dark Shadows. Two of the greatest TV horror icons of all time. Carl Kolchak and Barnabas Collins. That's right. They even tried remaking Dark Shadows one time, and now I hear it twice. twice. They they did it once that actually made it to the screen on NBC with Ben Cross. With Ben
1: Cross as right. Barnabas
0: Collins. They tried it, and in fact, Mark Verheiden. You know the name Mark Verheiden. Yeah, Verheiven? sure. He was the showrunner mm-hmm. on a version of Dark Shadows that was being developed for the WB. Oh, okay. Which looked really really interesting, but I think that they. Passed on it in favor of, I want to say, Birds of
1: Prey. Well, I trust your memory.
0: Yeah. Well, it was it's better passed, than mine. Yeah, it was passed over for another
1: show that turned out to not do well. And now I'm hearing things because they're doing Alice in Wonderland now. Mm-hmm. But I hear that also Tim Burton and Johnny Depp, they're interested in doing right. a remake. But see,
0: dark. now, I would rather see Johnny Depp maybe play Kolchak. Oh yeah, now that I would like to see Depp or Gary Oldman, those would be my two choices Yeah,
1: great choices, especially Gary Oldman But yeah, yeah Johnny Depp, I can you imagine him in that straw hat and that yeah. white suit? <laughs> Here's the plot. We start out with Oliver Reed, his wife, played by Karen Black, who we all revere from Trilogy of Terror. Yes, and long before she looked like she ate herself, so to speak. Yeah, isn't this sad how she's ate yeah. herself? You see or in it, this movie, she's yeah.
0: gorgeous. And the thing is also, we're talking about the 70s when it was okay for sex symbols to have a little flaw in them. Karen Black is a little cross-eyed. Yes, yeah, she is. But she was still like smoking hot. But somehow that
1: doesn't detract from yeah. right? that actually enhances because she's got that little What you call the wabi. Yeah.
0: Which is Japanese ch- and forgive me, Dino, Dino will correct me I'm sure if I got it wrong, but if I remember correctly, the wabi is supposed to be the intentional flaw an artist puts in his work to make the work look more beautiful.
1: Right. Matter of fact, I even dimly remember reading someplace that they could only work so many hours because one of her eyes would get tired yeah. and it would start drifting off to one side or other. Mm-hmm. If I'm wrong about that, I'm sure somebody will correct me. So we start off with Oliver Reed, his wife, played by Karen Black, and their young son played by Lee Montgomery. They're driving because they want to rent this huge old gothic mansion for the summer. It's never explained exactly why they want to mm-hmm. live in such a remote area. Although there is a scene halfway through the movie where Karen Black has fixed up this den right. for Oliver Reed to work in. And there's a typewriter mm-hmm. and she's saying, okay, you can work here by yourself. Nobody will bother you. Ja, sounds familiar? <laughs> or work and no say makes Oliver a dull boy? That's very good. <laughs> so they rent the house from this creepy brother and sister played by Burgess Meredith and Eileen Eckhart. Who wanted to rent this mansion for a ridiculously low price. It's so low that Albreed is convinced that there's a scam someplace. Mm -hmm. Or there's something wrong. smells like bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) I'll stop. (laughs) No, no, that's good. That's very good. (laughs) Turns out there is a catch. Mm -hmm. Burgess Meredith and Eileen Eckhart, the brother and sister, they're going to go away. But they're going to leave their aged mother who lives in a little apartment that's upstairs. The only thing that Aubrey and his family has to do is give her her meals, fix the tray, drop it off, otherwise they don't have to bother her. This dude smells like bullshit. <laughs> this smells like bullshit, Karen. Yeah, that's exactly what Let's, he thinks.
0: Let me make love to your cross-eyed countenance.
1: That's what he thinks. He thinks there's got to be something wrong here somewhere. However, Karen Black, being the wife, and as wives usually do, she gets her way, they rent the house, and they come there. Along with Alvarez's aunt, played by the great Betty Davis, mm-hmm. who in a movie like this you would be expecting to play the crazy old lady, but no, she actually plays a very sweet. Th- she's I- still
0: healthy at this time, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah.
1: She gets around pretty good in this yeah, movie.
0: It's not to like the 80s where she
1: starts really declining. Right. So they move into this mansion, and almost immediately weird things start to happen. Oliver Reed He starts dreaming about his mother's funeral. She died when he was real young. And he's being pursued by this sinister chauffeur. With these dark glasses. Very cadaverous. Looking almost like the tall man from the Phantasm movies. Karen Black starts spending more and more time up in the old ladies' section of the house. She starts wearing her hair differently, putting it up in the style of maybe 100 years ago and wearing brooches and wearing a shawl. And she becomes very possessive with the items in the house. She obsessively polishes the silver and the crisp. She insists that they don't use glasses anymore. They use goblets and they eat at the dining table. This isn't upstairs, downstairs, woman. Betty Davis becomes progressively sicker and sicker. The pool becomes a central element of the plot. Weird things start happening around the pool. We see at the beginning Oliver Reed, he's working on it. And it looks like it's decrepit and falling down and there's leaves and branches in it. And then there's one point in the movie where Karen Black comes out there and she says it looks almost brand new. And they haven't been there that long. There's a greenhouse out in back where there's dead and dying plants. The plants start coming back to life. Okay, so while you're watching this movie, you're saying to yourself, is the house really acting on these people? Is it haunted? Is it coming back to life? Especially since we never see the old lady. Right. The only one in the movie that ever sees her, supposedly, is Karen Black, who takes Mm her her meals. Oliver Reed keeps going up there and trying to see the old lady. And Karen Black keeps saying, oh, no, she's asleep. You can't bother. You can't bother. Well, why can't I see her? Why can't I talk to her? And she becomes very defensive. This movie does not depend on blood and gore and all that other stuff for what's happening it's very atmospheric it's very psychological in that you start wondering is the house really affecting these people or are they just going a little bit loopy from the isolation this mansion they never really tell you where it's at right but it's obviously a long way from anywhere Mm -hmm. it's a little something off the beaten path but if you like oliver reed and karen black of course, Betty Davis. Of course, it's a movie that you ought to see. Put it as a double feature on Halloween with The Shining. Watch right. it back to back and see if you don't agree with me. Especially in the ending shot. There's an ending shot, and when you see it, a burnt offerings and The Shining. I hope you're going to say, "Well, Derek was <laughs> right." There's a <laughs> lot in here. Or you may say, Derek was full of shit." In <laughs> all yeah, this is one of the few theatrical films
0: Curtis directed. Yes, which it was. and in Curtis, people forget what a legacy. Curtis has given us in terms of horror not just from The Night Stalker not just from Dark Shadows Dark Shadows Uh, there was that series of ABC television movies he did where he adapted classic works of horror literature
1: right he
0: did Dracula with mm-hmm. Jack Palance, which
1: my mom swears up and down gave me nightmares for days after I saw. Well, I can believe believe Jack Palance is the last person in the world right. who you would think of played Dracula, but he was very effective. He was also a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Mm-hmm. Hyde. There was Frankenstein. I don't remember who was in that, so it couldn't right. have been all that good, but
0: I do remember distinctly. Well, let's see, Frankenstein, the true Michael Sarazin I think, played the monster. Oh, Frankenstein, the true story. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember that. David uh, McCallum wasn't in it, Did, mm-hmm. didn't he? play yeah.
1: Frankenstein?
0: I think it was Michael York, I think, played. Michael Doctor.
1: York, okay.
0: And Saracen played the monster, I think, I'm not sure.
1: If I remember, that was like really one of the first really early roles that put Jane Seymour on the map. Yes, because she played the bride. The bride, yeah. We got our facts straight for once. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's my first burnt offerings from 1976. Okay. And I want to throw it over to Thomas now. And we're going to stay in the 70s. All right. Okay, we're going to stay in the 70s
0: with a film. It's become kind of a tradition for us here to talk about a film, every obscure horror film special, which has a very, very disquieting nude scene. Ooh, cool. And also it seems to be uh, something of a tradition that I usually talk about, something from the golden age of British horror, Mm-hmm. which stretches from the late 50s and goes on to about 74, 75,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mostly through the auspices of Hammer Films. In fact, most people think Hammer were the only people that did horror films at the time right, that right. were British. They forget that there are these smaller companies that also did them, one of which was Amicus, which we were going to devote an entire episode to. They did those
1: great anthologies mm-hmm. like the original Tales from the Crypt, right. the Vault of Horror... Asylum. A, yeah, a lot yeah, of Robert Block stuff. Which I really like. Torture uh, Garden Torture Garden, right. Uh, the House that Drip Blood. The House That Scream Stop. <laughs> so good.
0: <laughs> the House That Rips Up Your Parking Tickets. <laughs> and uh, Amicus kept riding that train to like about eighty one with the uh was it the Creatures from Beyond, which were yeah. adaptations of the R. Chetwin Hayes mm. short stories. Coming in as like a third little cousin, running way behind, was a little company called Tigon. Tigan did some pseudo-Gothic horror along the lines of Hammer. Most people will at least know of a title called The Blood Beast Terror, in which Wanda Ventham plays a Victorian woman who turns into a giant ambulatory blood-sucking moth. Okay. Admittedly, a lot of the Tigan stuff is pretty silly. Not
1: this one. This is the crown jewel of Tigan's short existence. This one is a movie that I remember seeing a lot on Channel 9 here in New York. Mm-hmm. Which is how I primarily discovered a lot of Hammer and British horror movies, period. Because it seemed mm-hmm. like they was always running them on Saturdays and Sundays. And I remember The Blood on Satan's Claw. When you said it, I said, oh yeah, I remember that movie. I don't remember a lot of details. I remember it was freaky as hell. Oh yeah, it is definitely
0: freaky. This is The Blood on Satan's Claw. It was made in 1971 by Pierce Haggard. Mm-hmm. who also co-wrote the script with Robert Wynn Simmons, who was a noted novelist at, at the time. It has a weird little history. It was originally meant to be an anthology film along the lines of Amicus. Mm-hmm. But the Tigan executives at the Haggard, we think that the anthology film thing is played out. Can you make them into an ongoing story? A single story. A single story. So, he took what footage he shot, mostly stuff from the first half of the film, involving a young man bringing home his fiance to meet his aunt. Mm. And his aunt don't like this fiance, so she puts her up in the attic to sleep. But there's something in the <laughs> attic. Well, of course. Now, one of the great things about this film, by the way, is that it was shot mostly using natural lighting. Mm-hmm. And this was way before Barry Lyndon, when Stanley Kubrick and Ken Adams perfected a way to shoot natural light With high definition. Right. So one of the real charms of this film, and one of the things that makes it so effective, is that using the natural lighting, you're
1: not quite sure what you're seeing, but you know it's not right. Well, that's what I really like about directors Mm -hmm. of that period. They didn't have the technology that we Mm -hmm. have now. They didn't have the money. So they had to work with what they had. But doing that, that forced them to be very inventive and to give us a lot of effects that you don't find in movies nowadays. Folks, not everything has to be CGI. Right. In this film, it takes place in the 17th century, a small town.
0: Ralph, who is a plowman, uncovers this weird-looking artifact in the field mm-hmm. that looks like a misshapen monstrous face, like a skull of some sort, but it doesn't look like it's a human skull, it doesn't look like it's an animal skull. And instead of burying the shit like he should have, huh? he brings it to the <laughs> attention of <laughs> the judge played by Patrick Weimark. This is his last role before he dies. Mm-hmm. This whole film I've mentioned to you in the past is kind of the flip side of The Witchfinder General. you right. Whereas The Witchfinder General is a nasty, nasty film where everything is pretty much realistic. This one acknowledges there are supernatural forces at work, but it's the okay. same weird, nasty, dirty, realistic 17th century.
1: That was one thing I distinctly remembered about it, that everything is dirty. Like, yeah. Nobody had water to take a I, bath. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Weimark says, oh, it's just a deformed animal. He's very much a man of reason. But he borrows a book from the doctor, Mm -hmm. a book of demonology, and says, I have to go up to London on business, but I will return. I love this. He goes, remember, there's evil here, but you have to let the evil grow, even when people die. Notice
1: he's saying this shit as he's packing his bags to go to London. (laughs) For only when the evil fully flowers can we destroy it. (laughs) And you know when somebody says, what you mean we?
0: I love the fact that the judge is thoroughly ruthless. Unlike Matthew Hopkins, who is ruthless for his own means. Mm -hmm. The judge is ruthless, but he means well for his people. Okay. So he drives away. Meanwhile, weird things are happening. This fiance is locked up in the attic. Goes insane, starts screaming in the middle of the night, won't stop screaming. Mm-hmm. They eventually send people to take her off to the bedlam, and when she leaves, her hand has been transformed into some sort of weird claw. When the dun, dun, fiance uh, goes up to the attic and sleeps there to investigate, he gets attacked by some weird thing that we only see as like a hand. He ends up losing his hand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He deserves what he He, gets. Now, oddly enough should have went up there with a couple of shotguns that look like the one the fiance was sporting Mm -hmm. show up in the bag held by a young woman named Angel Blake, who is played by the heavenly gorgeous Linda Hayden, who, it turns out, is something of a ringleader of the kids in the neighborhood. And the kids are behaving more and more rambunctious and rude to the schoolmaster, who is also the Reverend, played by Anthony Ainley, the former master of Doctor Who. Soon-to-be master of Doctor Who. It turns out that Angel is collecting these artifacts for some purpose. And, in fact, what's going on is that people who touch this law begin to feel pains in their body. And a growth is created that they call the devil's skin. And so they're going around killing people and harvesting, harvesting the skin, skin for reasons we don't know. Dun, dun, dun. So there's more and more terrible things happen. The most disquieting thing is Wendy Padbury, who is a former Doctor Who companion at this time. She played Zoe during the Trout and Era. She's walking through the woods picking flowers for somebody. Two boys say, oh, I found some flowers over there. And she. And the thing that's really great, the sequence lasts for about seven minutes. And the thing that's really, really creepy about this thing is that Haggard escalates the situation. And you begin to fear more and more for this character. Mm -hmm. And think of worse and worse and worse ideas of what's going to happen. And what ultimately happens is probably worse than any of the laws you come up with. Oh, jeez. Now, there are a lot of great performances in this film, and that's one of the things I love about the British horror of this era. You had all these character actors who would sometimes take starring roles, and it would simultaneously make you feel more in the film because you don't recognize these people off the top Yeah, of the exactly. We've talked about Patrick Weimark. We've talked about Anthony Ainley. But this film is owned lock, stock, and two smoking barrels by the one and only Linda Hayden. Who is one of the truly evil children of all time in film history? She is just so bad. And her performance is so good that she even manages to overcome the handicap of having to wear two really bad black crepe eyebrows about halfway through the film just to prove that she's really, 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 really evil. evil. If we didn't get it before, we go, oh, look at all, oh, anybody with those eyebrows must be evil. There is one flaw in this film, which is that it's a very low budget. Production, and has such things that they should not have shown are shown and left it up to the imagination. And you have this disjointed thing because it was originally an anthology. For example, the judge leaves about twenty five minutes in. Then all this weird stuff happens until about fifteen minutes before the end of the film. One of the characters goes,
1: "I better get the judge."
0: <laughs> try, try I love some of the stuff the judge says. That well,
1: reminds me of that great gag from that Bing Crosby Bob mm-hmm. Hope movie. Remember yep. the cavalry is riding all through the movie and every once in a while you cut yeah. to the cavalry and then you get to the end of the movie and they never got there and the captain turns to the audience and says, "Well, we, we <laughs> never got, we got there, there, but it was exciting, exciting shit, wasn't right? it?" Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite totally bizarre moments in this film is the guy goes, reaches the judge in London, and he goes, "I'm ready to return, but understand, I shall use undreamt of measures to conquer this evil." And you're like going, shit! What's this guy going to do? <laughs> yeah. Turns out, Untripped of measures means two dogs. The guy who's been in a couple of films we've talked about, the big hulking brute guy, usually plays deaf mutes, right? Who from was the
1: James Bond? From the, the, James...
0: Yes, the one who gets knocked off by his tie. Yeah, by love me and a big honking sword. Oh wow! Untripped but from, yeah, this film is really disturbing. It's really scary, and you have to seek it out. The problem is. It is not on DVD. Can't find the damn can't thing. can't find the damn thing. <laughs> Apparently, Turner Movie Classic shows it every once in a while.
1: Yes, that was the last time I think I saw it. And even that was like about like five, six yeah. years ago. It's been a
0: while. You have to find this. I guarantee you, you will never forget this film. I think MGM UA presently owns the rights. Put out a DVD folks especially now when so many of the principals are still alive Pierce Haggard is still alive I would love to hear because Linda Hayden at this time was about 17 years old and she's got a full on nude scene Mm -hmm. that leaves nothing to the imagination (laughs) when she's seducing Anthony Ainley trying to get him to become a member of the cult one of the the creepy things about this cult that she runs is that it's mostly kids but there are also these two old people that mm-hmm. are always taking up the rear when they're going on their worship sessions. Mm-mm. They're taking it up the rear? Not taking it up the rear, taking it <laughs> <out> up <laughs> the rear. Yeah, Get you, your mind you, out of the well, gutter. Cut yourself, man. I would love to I hear, know what you're thinking. <laughs> I would love to hear Linda Hayden talk about this and some of the other actors. There are some Region 2 discs out there which are apparently using bad copies we need to get a region one disc
1: of this film, because this is a really true forgotten classic. Period. And on a more sober note, just let me just say that, through these British horror movies, Mm -hmm. this was like my first exposure to the juxtaposition between sex and horror, and how Mm -hmm. they're intertwined. These British horror movies were never short of heaving bosoms, and a lot of sexual perversions was going on. Let's be honest. Even though it was kind
0: of implied in the Universal films, Hammer Films was the first people to portray the vampire as what he was meant to be when he was first came out of the human unconscious, which was a representation... Of sexuality Just gone insane
1: Right yeah, One of the movies That I think about The Frank Langella Dracula Right It's pretty blatant And mm-hmm. in your face Just like the, well, know, like the British Well yeah, It's movies. films
0: like The Frank Langella Dracula And especially The Exorcist that killed The British Gothic Horror tradition Those were the most Out there you could find In the 60's Oh yeah And then yeah. along comes The Exorcist And Texas Chainsaw And Halloween And all these films Which are much more graphic And much more in your face And much more Grabbing you by the throat Cameron didn't know How to compete Yeah exactly they didn't know how to do it Which is a shame
1: You say Hammer's coming back
0: They are back so They did this one Really stupid uh, Internet only thing Called Beyond the Rave And supposedly They've got a couple Of films in the works And I hope they come back Amicus also is coming back Right yeah. But my fear is that The Hammer of today Is not going to be The Hammer Oh no nah. They're going to be Doing the same thing That Platinum Dunes Is doing And Ghost House And Dark Castle And all yeah. the people Yeah what is doing.
1: it The other one Dimension Dimension this, yeah
0: Dimension yeah That's mine. And next up is your next
1: choice. Okay, this is a movie that I'm sure everybody out there has heard about. However, due to certain things that's going on in our society today, Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty relevant. So just bear in mind with me for a minute. I'm going to run through the plot Mm -hmm. pretty quickly because I'm pretty sure everybody knows about the plot. And we're still in the 70s. Well, Yeah, we're not getting out the 70s. (laughs) All we need is a disco ball in our white suits and we'd be in there, man. It's 1971's Duel, which, of course, is the movie that put Steven Spielberg on the map right. as a director.
0: And this is a very rare example of a TV movie that was actually
1: released theatrically after the fact. Here's the interesting thing that I'm, I'm going to tell you. Not only was it re- released theatrically, Universal actually gave Steven Spielberg more money and said, Go film additional mm-hmm. scenes. Right. To stretch it out, to add a little bit more backstory, and to add a little bit more scenes of destruction Mm -hmm. with the truck, because he had to go out and find some more trucks now. So the movie was actually extended to be Mm -hmm. shown theatrically. Back then, folks, we had what was called the Tuesday Movie of the Week, ABC, where... They produced their own movies mm-hmm. that they were showing Tuesday night. They were like about like 90 yeah. minutes long. This is where we first saw the And it's co- dead now.
0: The, the tradition of the TV movie is very dead.
1: Well, now it's all straight to DVD.
0: Yeah, and also I guess it's migrated to free cable. Yeah, okay, but you got like Lifetime TV movies. Right. you got those awful sci. Sorry, SIFI. <laughs> S-Y-F-Y
1: or. people? What is up with that? Get it out your system, Tom. Sorry, go ahead. No, go right ahead. Because I feel the same way, but I'd rather save that for an entire show where we can really go off on their asses. (laughs) USA, I still believe they do their own movies, TBS. That's where it's going. But back in the 70s, Every Tuesday night, you got to see an original movie, and some of them became pretty well known in pop culture. There was The Screaming Woman with Olivia right. de Havilland. There was, of course, Trilogy of Terror. Right. There was Haunts of the Very Rich with mm-hmm. Lloyd Bridges. Do you remember that one? Do you remember the one? It was, I think it was a, another Karen Black film mm-hmm. where
0: she's disturbed by these little creatures that live under the stairs. Oh, yeah. I don't remember
1: the name of that one, but I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bad Ronald. You mm-hmm. remember Batman? Yes, Ronald? I remember Bad with the, Yeah. So yeah, like the Gargoyles. Gargoyles. Oh with Burning Casey. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And let us not forget, of course, probably the most famous of these films,
1: The Night Stalker and The, the Night Strangler. The Night Strangler, yeah. So this is what you got during the 70s when you tuned in every Tuesday night. These were movies that we went to school the next day yeah. and the teachers had to tell us to either shut up or either the teachers had to say, okay, y'all take 15 minutes to talk about the movie right. and then we're going to have the lesson. So in Duel... We have Dennis Weaver, middle-aged businessman, mm-hmm. called David Mann. The symbolism is pretty obvious. Right. They're D-Man. He's driving on a highway in California. We find out that he's on his way to meet somebody. And there's one scene, which is one of the extra scenes that was filmed. Right. He's talking to his wife. And she's bitching at him about some things that happened at a party the other night. He's saying, well, I got to go meet this guy and then I'll be back home. That doesn't really matter. What really matters is that as he's driving... There's a gray tanker truck that he passes on the highway. They're the only vehicles on there, and it's going slow, and, of course, he's in a hurry. He's got to get to where he's going. So he passes the truck. The truck passes him and deliberately slows down, forcing him to slow down. Now, every time he tries to get past the truck, the guy won't let him go by until the guy finally waves him on. So he says, well, thanks for nothing, you son of a bitch. And he goes by and is almost (laughs) runs head on into a pickup truck that's coming this way. Right. Now he's saying, well, did this guy do it on purpose? And as soon as it develops that this guy driving this tanker truck is playing this very weird game of cat and mouse with him, where, yeah, he's really out to kill him. Now the freaky thing is that we never see the driver of the truck throughout the whole movie. We do get glimpses of his boots in a couple of scenes, like in one where Weaver pulls over to get some gas, and the tanker truck... It also pulls over. Dennis Weaver's looking and he's trying to figure out. And we hear the narration in his head. Because Weaver is the only character in the movie. He stops at a truck stop to get a sandwich. Because there's one scene where the tanker truck has actually run him off the road. Mm -hmm. So he stops at this diner and he's trying to get himself together. And the people in it are looking at him kind of weird. He interacts with them. But they're not really characters. His whole thing is he's trying to figure out... Why is this guy trying to kill him? Did he offend right. him that badly? There's another scene, also one which Spielberg had to go back and film, where there's a bunch of school kids that are in... Don't ask me what they're doing out there in the middle of the right. friggin' desert in a school bus. But Weaver's trying to, frantically to get them back on the bus because he could see the truck parked down the right. road and it's belching steam like it's getting ready to fire up. And they're he thinks... Get over. He, yeah, exactly. This is why I think... The movie is kind of relevant now. Bear with me here for a moment, folks. You have a character called D-Man. And he's being pursued by what? A tanker truck filled with gasoline. D-Truck. (laughs) D-Truck. Given the current economic situations... Here we have a, a man being pursued and trying to be killed mm-hmm. by oil prices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, if you drive today like I do, you know that the gas yeah. price is killing you. <laughs> so, to me, it was a weird kind of symbolism for what's going on today about an ordinary man being killed by... The, and, of course, he's driving this real piece of shit vehicle. Because there's one part in the movie that's very suspenseful where they're going up to uh, upgrade. Right. And, of course, the truck has got to slow down. It can't go up as fast as his car. Mm-hmm. Weaver's car, all of a sudden, the hose to the radiator, which people all through the movie have been telling him he should get fixed, doesn't get it fixed. And the car slows down. He has to turn the car off. Right. And hopefully, once he goes down the other side, the temperature will cool down enough. And hopefully the car will start up before this truck gets to kill him. Right. For a first movie, you can already see the elements that would make Steven Spielberg the most successful director of all time. It's a very well-made, suspenseful movie. And considering that Weaver is really the only character in there, except for brief other moments where he interacts with other people, you never feel like, oh, well, it's not boring. It's right. boring. He's really got nobody he's interacting with. It's him against this unseen guy in the truck. If you've been listening to me for a while, you know movies that people say that they're scared by, like The Texas Chainsaw right. Massacre or Saw. That stuff doesn't scare me. I know that I'm not going to wake up in a basement someplace where right. some criminal mastermind has spent 10 years trying to figure <laughs> out how to put me in there with some death trap. I mean, come on. That shit doesn't happen. However, it is conceivable I could be on the highway with some that maniac off the that, wrong yeah, right, who wants to kill me. That's why dude scares shit out of me. Me and right. my wife drive to Florida two mm-hmm. or three times a year. Yeah, I could inadvertently piss off somebody on the highway and he mm-hmm. could try to kill me. And you know what would be an interesting double
0: feature? What's that? This with, I don't know if you're familiar with this film, John Dahl did. I think it was like one of the last films he did, Joyride. I've heard of it. I've never Which seen it. Which is actually, it's very good. It's a very different approach to a very similar story. Mm-hmm. Where you've got these two brothers driving cross country, pick up this girl that he's got a crush on, and they buy an old CB radio and play a joke on a trucker. Mm-hmm. Who we only know by the name Rusty Nail, voice of Ted Levine. And that's oh, pretty much cool. all you hear is voice of Ted Levine is not very happy with the joke.
1: So oh, okay, I, I thank you for. Po- I, I gotta look that up. It's actually pretty damn good film. Now that'll probably be my Halloween viewing. There you year. go. Okay, I own, I'll, I'll lend it to you. Okay, cool. So because yeah, that sounds good. Do I'm pretty sure all of you have seen it. If you haven't, then you probably have no interest in seeing it now. But I still think that as a horror movie, right. it works for me because it's horror that could happen. Mm-hmm. It's a situation that any of us could conceivably find ourselves in. And to me, that's what horror is. That's Mm -hmm. what me Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, I love the movies, but that's strictly as entertainment. I'm not actually scared by it, because I know there's nothing that's going to come in my dreams and try to kill me. However, a maniac on a highway? Yes. It happens every day, Paul. So now I'm
0: going to throw it back to Tom. And we are going to leave the 70s, at least briefly, to talk about... An 80s film. Oh,
1: look at that. See, my car keys fell oh. out of my oh.
0: pocket. Wow. Oh! Serious. You're God of the, the Motor, <laughs> is this with you, Derek? Oh. And I'm talking about 1987's Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2 which is a Canadian film. It was originally filmed under the title The Haunting of Hamilton High until some smart guy in the production company realized that Hamilton High was also the name of the high school in the original Prom Night. Ah, with Jamie Lee Curtis. With Jamie Lee Curtis. And then it became Prom Night 2, The Haunting of Hamilton High, uh, of and course. then got the much kickier title. And I like to think it was because the director, Ron Oliver, realized that the best performance in this film was being given by a young woman named Lisa Schrag, who is a curious case... We've talked about this in the past, about these actresses who do two or three films and burn real, real hot, real, real quickly, and then disappear without a trace. Yeah. We're going to be talking about that a lot when we get to the Rivals of Bond series. Oh, okay. Because we're going to talk about Davi L- Lamy. And yeah! Lamy. Okay. Um, Lisa Schrake, to the best of my knowledge, appeared in only four films in the 80s, a handful of TV shows, and then has never been heard from since. Really? The sad thing is I've seen three of them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sad if you liked it Well, I like her Sometimes I watch a movie, like you said, Dahlia Lave, like, Yeah, You know who we're going to talk about She was usually in shit movies I watched it because I could not take my eyes off she this is, woman
0: I don't think I'm exaggerating She is one of the most amazing looking women I think I've ever S- seen in my life
1: Naturally beautiful I would willingly I would put her right up a yeah. uh, shit movie Just because she's
0: in it Right the film begins in 1957 with the prom of Hamilton High. The person who's about to be crowned as the prom queen mm-hmm. is Mary Lou Maloney. And we know Mary Lou Maloney's not a nice girl from the first scene in the film where she goes to the church to give her confession. Hello, Mary Lou. <laughs> she, the confessional opens That the priest says, what is your confession? And She goes, oh, I've used the Lord's name in vain many times.
1: Eh, four Hail Marys. I've
0: disobeyed my parents many times. Eh,
1: five Hail Marys. I've
0: laid down with Boys, many boys, ah, save many me. times. Say what? <laughs> and, Tell me more, and and my you know, child. And you know what, Reverend? <laughs> I loved every minute of it. And then she gets up, and you realize she's just running in lipstick for a good time. Call Mary Lou and a phone number. Oh, shit. Um, so she's about to be crowned the prom queen. <laughs> she has oh steady boyfriend Bill Nordum, but she's fucking this other guy in the back room behind the stage. Nordum finds them. Gets really upset because he thought she, they were going to get married and all that. He stalks off, gets drunk, is watching her get crowned from the rafters, and is like about ready to light a cigarette. Mm. His hands kind of slip, and he ends up accidentally setting Mary Lou on fire. Oh shit! Before she's crowned, right? Cut to the present day, which in this case is 1987. Bill is now the principal of Hamilton High, and the guy she was fucking is now the village priest. Bill Nordham's son, Craig played by one of a number of thirty year old teenagers in this film. Oh god. Is in love with Vicky Carpenter, who is probably a forty year old teenager. She looks as far away from her teen years as I look as far away from India. She's one of the people who's up for the for prom queen. Okay. But she's very poor. She has a puritanical mother and she needs to get a dress for the prom. So she goes into the theatrical department to look for a prom dress and finds this old case opens it up it turns out that the case is where they put all the uh, clothing and stuff from that night all the prom queen because they decide it's bad luck to use it again Yeah, yeah yeah okay so she decides to use the material in there to make a new dress and that's when things go horribly horribly wrong don't get me wrong this is not the greatest film in the world and part of the problem is this is an 80s film so all the teenagers look like they should be actually gears of their parents, not their children.
1: And of course, about like 45 minutes into the movie, it's pretty yeah. obvious who the killer is. What happens is, as she makes this dress, Mary
0: Lou becomes more and more powerful. At its core, it's a ghost story. And she ultimately, in a really cool scene, takes over... Vicky's body When it happens She's in the classroom In front of a chalkboard And Mary Lou Actually reaches out Of the chalkboard And mm. drags her into it As she's dragged out The letters in the chalkboard Swim around And reconfigure themselves that was like a cool It's little touches like this The funny thing about this Is even though it was made In Canada It has a very Italian Horror movie feel With the garish oh, okay. colors A lot of the weird Excuses for nudity There's one scene Where Vicky is stalking A victim Totally nude
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah, you say whoa, but if you looked at her, she's not a pleasant person to look at. Yeah, but she's nude. Yeah, but she's nude. Okay. (laughs) You see how shallow I am. The main reason Mary Lou has come back is to get that crown, but the secondary thing is to torment her old... Boyfriends. Oh, boyfriends. Okay. And she's doing that by trying to seduce Craig. Michael Ironside, who plays Bill, has these nightmares of being in a drive-in where Mary Lou is in the back seat with Craig and doing bad things to him.
1: Hello, Mary Lou. Well, (laughs) and
0: the reason I bring this film up is this film is pretty much made by the performance of Lisa Schrag, who was this stunning brunette, very much Meg Foster-eyes. Very Mm -hmm. startlingly startlingly blue eyes. She gives a tremendous performance in what little time she has. Because she's only the first ten minutes of the film. And she really doesn't have anything significant to do until the last ten minutes. But for those twenty minutes, she owns this. She She, just just grabs this film and says, this is my performance, motherfuckers. I
1: hear that.
0: It surprises me she didn't get any more work. Because she was in this, she was in Naw, Food of the Gods too, she was in a Hong Kong film set in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. which was released here on DVD as China White. I've heard of that movie. She kind of like disappeared off the face of the earth, and I gotta wonder what happened to her because the other films in China White and Naw she wasn't as great.
1: But in this film, it's like, this is my... Uh, well, you know, some people, they just get into yeah. acting for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Some people don't get into state in, right. Maybe she got a better offer. Maybe yeah. she got married. So,
0: well, it's like what happened with Carolyn Schlitt, the USA Up All Night hostess. Yeah. Who, uh, I posted about it on my live journal, based right. Monkey Mafia. The last report I have heard is somebody has said that they found her in Atlanta. And yeah, she got married and retired from the business. Yeah. Maybe somewhere in Edmonton, Alberta... Or British Vancouver, Lisa Schrag is acting as a teacher. Now granted, part of me wishes we never get to see her again because... Then you won't get a situation like when Stacey Nelikan resurfaced last year. Mm-hmm. After having written a how-to book about
1: how to maintain a healthy marriage, she did not age well. Ooh, well, see, there you go. Sometimes it's better. That's why this is one of my favorite all-time women. One was gorgeous. Betty Page. Yeah. Betty Page never allowed herself to be photographed. Because they found that she was yeah. a born-again Christian living in Florida. She was very happy with her life. She and got, I mean, I give her credit for
0: not... Hi, Because there are stories Ken McIntyre On the recent movie about Girl mm-hmm. Talks about one of the Russ Myers women yeah. Who now refuses to acknowledge That she ever was in these movies Right Betty
1: Page will talk about it, Right she talk, But she just said Don't show my picture yeah, yeah. Now. She said I love that Let us remember her Right As she was at her best And she never allowed anybody To photograph her But she was living A nice quiet life Yeah And she was happy with it Some people do that They leave what they were doing And you know why They've got the sense to say Let me walk away from it now Right while I got the chance, and let me go on and find another life. Which is what's I going can. on now with a lot of wrestlers. Somebody like Chris
0: unfortunately Chris Jericho has come back. I give Chris Jericho, and he was one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, mm. a lot of credit for saying, I don't want to end up doing the independent circuit when I'm 60. There you go. I want to do my music, I want to try acting, and he walked away for a couple Sometimes
1: of Sometimes you have to walk away when you're young enough yeah. to be
0: able to walk away. Or so Dwayne Johnson. Do, or
1: you could do something else. Yeah.
0: Well, he's talked about doing one more match for WrestleMania. And he's one of these people who has always been very clear that he has utmost respect for Vince McMahon and Mm -hmm. for what Vince McMahon did for him. But I give him credit for... Being retired And staying retired
1: Exactly Sometimes it is better To walk away When you're young enough To be able to do something else And you have your fans Oh why should you do that? Yeah okay well You gotta remember something These people have lives too They have ambitions They have dreams Like somebody Some people want to keep acting For the rest of their life Or doing wrestling For the rest of their life Mm -hmm. Some people don't They get into it for a while Okay like me and you When we were younger In our 20's We did other things Different from what we're doing now That's just the nature of life And you gotta respect people For doing that
0: It's like that line in fever pitch, where they said, well, if I was wanted to do what I was thinking I was going to do when I was 12, I'd be an astronaut
1: and married to Scott Bacula, or something like that. Yeah, Mm. so now that we're finished with the sermonizing, and it's back to me now. And back to the 70s. Yes, we're going to go back to 1976, to a strange little movie that stars two of my favorite actors, and I wanted to do this because a lot of people see her in movies nowadays, And I think they kind of take her for granted because she's been around for a long, long Mm -hmm. time doing consistently excellent work. In this movie, you see the seeds of what she would be later on. Yeah. And she's doing movies now. I'm talking about Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. And the movie is The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane. If you folks are paying attention, you've seen a pattern to the movies
0: that I've been reviewing. And, and that it does. also seems like this is the episode of
1: Really Bad Kids. Yeah, good <laughs> point. <laughs> good point. All of the movies that I've done depend more on psychological yeah. horror and atmosphere more than blood and gore and people being thrown off of flaming wheelchairs.
0: People think that horror is only about how... People get off in these movies. Right. People forget that horror is a emotion. And there are many ways you can get that emotion. Mm-hmm. Not just through watching somebody die horribly.
1: This is a movie that every time I see it, the ending creeps me out to no mm-hmm. end because of the way it's filmed. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. We start with Jodie Foster. She's living in this small New England town. And she's living in this house by herself. Mm -hmm. Supposedly her father lives with her. He's a famous writer. He's off and away on business. As we soon find out, nobody's seen her father for a while. This comes to the notice of the landlady. Who insists that she needs her jelly glasses? Right. This woman is obsessed with jelly glasses, and Mm -hmm. the jelly glasses are in the basement. Right. Jody Forster keeps saying, "Well, I can't let you in the house. I can't let anybody in the house when my father's not here." Either she says that he's away on business, or he's in his den upstairs working Mm -hmm. on his book and cannot be disturbed at any time. The landlady keeps saying, "Well, I need to talk to your father because I need my jelly glasses. They're in the basement." Okay, I'll tell my father. The landlady's son played by a baby-faced Martin Sheen, who in this one is a dead ringer for his son, Charlie Sheen. If you watch it, you didn't know it. You'd swear that's who it was. The lady's son keeps coming around, and it becomes pretty obvious that he's a pedophile. Right. Because he's got this unhealthy interest in Jodie Foster's activities and what is she like, what does she do all day and all night alone in this house by herself. One day, the old lady... Because... People around are now becoming kind of suspicious because they've never seen the father. Jody Foster says, well, my mother is dead and it's just me and my father now. One of the local cops in this small town, he keeps coming by and knocking on the door. Well, is your right. father home? Well, no, he's not. Here. Well, when I came by last week, he wasn't here. And the landlady comes by and she insists on coming in the house. She busts in the house and she tells Jodie her face, I don't believe your father is in the house and I want my jelly glasses. Long story short, she falls down the stairs going to the basement and breaks her silly ass Mm -hmm. neck. Foster panics and she hides the body. Mm -hmm. Because as it turns out, there is no father. He's dead. The mother's dead. She's living there by herself and maintaining the illusion that she's living there. But she just wants to live by herself. She doesn't want to be bothered. She doesn't want to go to a foster home. She starts having this relationship with another kid who's an amateur magician. And he always walks around with a cape. ...and a top hat... Right. ...and a cane... ...but he uses the cane partly because he had polio... Right. ...when he was a kid... ...but he's an accomplished magician... ...and he knows magic tricks... matter of fact he's so accomplished at this... ...he's actually able to fool the cop when he comes around one time... ...by pretending to be Jody Foster's father... ...because he knows makeup... ...he's one of these nerdy kids that read the monster magazines... ...and gets makeup kits... ...and due to his voice being so hoarse from him getting over pneumonia... Right. ...he pulls it off successfully... ...in the meantime... Martin Sheen is still coming around, still bothering Jodie Foster. And he finds out that her father is dead. And he actually finds the body of his mother in the basement. And that sets it up for one of the most chilling endings of any movie that I've ever seen. I'm not going to give it away, but you have Jodie Foster watching somebody else die. And you know how it usually mm-hmm. look like in a the movie they have like a freeze frame? Right. They don't. As the credits are rolling, there's a fireplace in the back. The flames are moving. Mm-hmm. You see her quietly drinking the tea. And you hear the soft sounds of somebody choking to death off camera. And this goes on for a couple of minutes Jeez. now. If you haven't seen The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lake... Please, I recommend that you get... If you're a fan of Jodie Foster or Martin Sheen, it's a hell of a good movie. It is. It's no blood, no gore, but it's very suspenseful, very atmospheric. And that ending, if it don't give you the chills, well then, hey, you just ain't got no soul.
0: Forgotten films in the long tradition... I think the reason it was forgotten is because this was released at the very end of AIP's existence. When AIP was stumbling and sputtering and beginning to die... And, like an idiot, they decided to try to do a big-budget film, namely Meteor, oh, yeah, a year yeah. or two later, and that killed
1: them. Yeah, with Sean dead. Connery. Yeah. This one, they should have hyped this one yeah. a little bit more. I mean, there was a, a
0: movie theater on Liberty Avenue when I was living in uh, Woodhaven. And AIP had apparently rented out the theater for the entire summer, and they had like a whole AIP summer of thrills. This film was released that year, and the British Island of Dr. Moreau with Michael York oh, and Barbara okay. Carrera was released that year, mm-hmm. Tentacles, the infamous ah, ten- super octopus monster movie, <laughs> all these films, and of course, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. Luckily though, this about four years ago, finally got a DVD release yeah, in 2005. Yeah. Does Jodie Foster talk about it? No, I don't hear her talk about it at
1: all. Yeah. I mean, Although um, I wonder
0: if she doesn't talk about it because nobody remembers it to bring it up. Yeah,
1: well that's it. This is a 1976 movie. A lot of people don't go back that far to watch movies, right. but me, I happened to catch it one night, it was on, I don't know, it was on Sh- uh, Flix right. or something like that. This is Jodie Foster, I said, oh, well, let me watch it, and Martin Sheen, I sat there riveted for 90 minutes, and I, it would have got to the end You know what would be
0: an interesting double feature with this? well Although I wonder if people who are used to the modern MTV cut 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 style of editing would be able to sit through both of them back to back. The Beguiled. Oh, with Clint Eastwood, oh yeah. yeah. Oh God, the Beguiled. That is a film that is probably going to end up in next year's Obscure Movies Oh, special. man. The begu- I love that. Yeah,
1: the Beguile is like this in that when you get to the ending, you're sitting there and you say, oh, shit.
0: I can't believe they're doing that. Yeah,
1: exactly. I can't believe that they did that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah, this would make a good double feature with the Beguile. So, so that was mine. The little girl lives down the lane. I'm done with my three, so we just got one more coming from Tom. And this one is
0: one that I promised our good friend Dave DeVanche I would eventually get around to doing something like a year and a half ago. And how much did Dave slip you on the table? No, with? no, this was something where... <laughs> I was aware that this movie existed because when it had its very, very, very limited theatrical run, one of the few theaters that actually showed it here in New York was the Bridgewood Five-Flex next door to me. Which, unfortunately... is Still the- no more. Somebody has talked about buying it and turning the bottom floor into kind of a mini-mall, and the top three theaters will still be movie theaters, but I'll oh, believe that when I see that it. sucks. But I just passed up because it looked like just your average slasher movie. And then I heard Dave talk about it, an episode of The Geek Savants. Mm-hmm. And he, it intrigued me. And I emailed him and we exchanged. He said, Oh, you got to see this. This is really good. And we're talking about, of course, 2006's Behind the Mask The
1: Rise of Leslie Vernon. And I remember that you were so impressed with this movie. I think the day after you I saw it, I called, called you me and, again, I and I you said, said, Oh, man, you, gotta you got yeah, to see this Yeah. you got to see this. <laughs>
0: this is a clever ass movie. <laughs> of independent film shot in Portland, Oregon, Oregon for very little money, apparently. With a cast mostly of unknowns, mm-hmm. except for, of course, in very small roles, Robert Englund and Zelda Rubenstein. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The uh, little uh, short short Right, Tangina. Oh, from, in fact,
1: Tangina from Poltergeist. Yes, yeah. in
0: fact, at one point in her one scene, it's a fairly lengthy scene, she's talking to the girl, the survivor girl. And we'll explain what that means okay. shortly. She wants to go off and show her some backstory on Leslie Vernon. And there's this long shot, and you see this former model who's playing the Survivor Girl. Mm-hmm. And Zelda Rubenstein, and as it's pointed out, her head comes up to her knee. <laughs> <laughs> Behind the Mask takes place in an alternate universe where Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers and all the serial killers of movie fame really exist. Interesting premise. Okay. What we are doing in this film is we are following the efforts of Taylor Gentry, who is an up-and-coming television newswoman. Really tiny, kind of cute, but not gorgeous girl, who thinks she's got the story that is going to make her jump from local to national. In that she's been contacted by Leslie Vernon, who is played masterfully Mm -hmm. by Nathan Bessel. Because she's done, apparently, some background pieces on some of these killers. He's like, I'm about to embark on my career as a psycho killer. And I'd like somebody to to document it. Before he's killed Body One. Yes, before he's killed Body One. He contacts this girl. Guy with no shortage of confidence. So, the bulk of this film is footage shot by her cameraman and sound man. As she follows... Leslie around as he's explaining the tricks of the trade about how you have to create your character's backstory and (laughs) plant the seeds. You've got to choose the right Survivor Girl. And the Survivor Girl is, in fact... The person who ends up living through your rampage. Okay. And in fact, she's chosen this survivor girl, Kelly, who works in this diner in this small town, Glen Echo, in Massachusetts. And she's going to be the survivor girl. At one point, they're like outside the high school, and he's going, The jock types, there, here is your. The Stoners are great. Canon photo If you want to Build up your body count And the great thing is You leave one alive And they tell people That they were shot by a series Nobody believes them <laughs> So this guy yeah. actually made a study of the M.O. of a serial killer. We see him training because he's got to have cat-like reflexes so you can do the teleportation tricks and stuff. We meet his mentor. The teleportation trick. Yeah, he's like, you got to be super, super fast because you've got to like get out of view real quickly, real fit, and appear, and appear so. somewhere else. <laughs> we get to meet his mentor, who is played by Scott Wilson, who has oh, married Scott Wilson. Okay, who has married his final girl. It's, it's a weird scene because they first take her to see the mentor, Eugene. His wife is like, oh, she's out back practicing his breath control. So they ah. go out to this field and Leslie and uh, Taylor have to dig him up because he's in a coffin. Practicing his breath because control. Because he explains it. The first things you learn if you're tra- training to be a psycho killer is how to slow your heartbeats so that you appear dead. <laughs> Tricks and Trades. And, and, of, of and the cycle and this killer. The whole secrets where they're visiting I Eugene like, is like kind it. of kind of really fun and creepy because it's almost like he's taking Taylor
1: home to meet his folks. His folks, yeah. Really cool. Tricks and Trades. He's
0: the cycle killer. Eventually, what happens has with Dutch film, I think you may be familiar with, called Dog Bites Man. Yeah, Slowly Nathan starts incorporating them Into his little campaign mm-hmm. So like for example He has Taylor help him break into a library So he can make an appearance In front of Kelly And that's when he learns he has an Ahab Go ahead an and ask a- it What's an Ahab? Dr. Loomis Ray Wise and Jeepers Creepers The guy who is made Chasing after the psycho killer His life's life work, work.
1: Ah. And
0: Dr. Halloran the Ahab in this film was played by Robert Englund. Ooh,
1: good man! Ooh.
0: At one point, Taylor decides to try to interview Kelly and gets screamed down. And you, because that's something that's brilliant about Nathan Bethel's. Performance is that he's charming Mm -hmm. And he's clever and he's smart And you like him almost instantly Because he's making jokes And he's being funny Like at one point where they're hiding out in the library He reaches up, pulls down a paperback goes, oh look, Paradise
1: Lost, found it Throws it aside (laughs) Found (laughs) it (laughs) Gets that like comes a, off as almost ad lib. Yeah, that, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of
0: the film was uh, improvised, apparently. Oh, okay. And then you begin to get more and more. Situated. This guy is not quite right. That well, he's uh, training to be a psycho killer. <laughs> and then about an hour and five minutes into the film, Taylor just figures this is too much for me. he's like, "We got to go warn Kelly." The the camera goes. What about the documentary? And she to goes. The documentary's over, and we switch to a full on theatrical mode.
1: Ah,
0: okay. Where she goes to warn Kelly, and Kelly is doing the reverse cowgirl on some guy. And then we learn the true secret. I'm not going to give too much away after this, Mm -hmm. but once it turns into a theatrical film from being this kind of mock documentary, we learn that Leslie has planned things out a lot earlier
1: than we thought. Yeah, we thought he did. In the true tradition of the a psycho tra- killer. Because yeah. Yeah. these are the guys who plan five years ahead yeah. and outthink everybody. Yeah, But it's a clever
0: and it's a smart film. It's one of those few films that have grown up in the wake of the Blair Witch Project that actually has done something clever with the whole mockumentary thing. The two central performances, which is Leslie Vernon, like I said, because he... Convinces you, almost from the start, that you like him. Yeah, you really like him. <laughs> and by the time you realize, I should not be liking this guy, it's, it's far... too late. Yeah. Your ass is stuck. And dude. Angela Goethals Taylor. She was a theatrical actress, apparently, and I think she went right back to theater afterwards. Mm-hmm. You get the impression, it's almost like a courtship for a while mm-hmm. in that early part,
1: until she begins to realize... This guy is well it is it, it's a seduction cuz this guy's charming and everything part of it depends on him being able to charm you. You're yeah. not supposed to look at him and say well he's a psycho killer. It's really really really
0: fun. Uh if there's one problem is that about two or three times they do cut into the theatrical mode before that moment. Which I think does kind of disrupt the flow of the they film. They should have just stuck yeah. firmly
1: in the documentary mode and then gone full mm-hmm. yeah. theatrical.
0: But if you are bored with the state of slasher remakes... As I am. ...and just find the slasher movie convention stupid in the extreme... I um, do. Check this out. I'm proud to
1: say it. It
0: manages to have fun with the slasher genre... But not in that winking, winking, aren't I smug way that Scream did. But also gives you an effective scare fest at the end. Sounds
1: like a movie tailor-made for me.
0: I think you would enjoy it. I think it would be, um, it's just, it is just a lot of fun. Good. So, that is it for our recommendation. I think we got a nice little slate. That's
1: it. We're done already.
0: Yes! Wow! So let's review our six choices.
1: Okay, you want to review yours first. Or should okay, I? go ahead. You review. My yours first.
0: three choices was 1971's really, really nasty old school story of old school Satanism amongst kids back when things were rotten. <laughs> and no, boy, <laughs> are they rotten as in this Mel film. Brooks put it so well. <laughs> Which needs to be on DVD, MGMUA, like now. Blood on Satan's Claw, the whacked-out Canadian, but with a very strong Italian-feel, Ghost Story, uh, which provided the greatest starring role of Lisa Schrag, Hello Mary Lou, Prom Night 2, and of course, the absolutely charming and amazingly fun, and I say this in a positive way, I don't usually like horror movies to be fun, but Mm -hmm. this one is, in the best of all possible senses, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon.
1: Okay, very good. And for my three, which definitely I was in old school mode Mm -hmm. in this episode, first I had Burnt Offerings Mm -hmm. with Oliver Reed, Karen Black, and Betty Davis about a family living in what is apparently a haunted house that is driving them mad. Or are they just driving themselves mad from the isolation? Then we had the Steven Spielberg classic Duel, which stars Dennis Weaver as a hapless businessman just minding his business who pisses off the wrong guy on the road (laughs) and spends the whole movie trying to escape from him. And also, I threw in my little bullshit symbolism about the uh, the oil price. But forget all that. It's just simply a well-made thriller. And then I finished up with uh, The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, one of the earliest movies made by Jodie Foster, who we know what she eventually became. Right, It's her as a little girl living alone by herself, maintaining the illusion her parents are still alive, while trying to fend off a pedophile played by world <laughs> people, Martin Sheen. So I guess it's now
0: time for the administrative before we take us out of here. Yes, sir. If you love us, if you hate us, if you want to tell us that the Saw films are a great achievement of cinematic masterfulness. Um there are a number of ways to contact us. These days the best thing to do is send us an email at Better in the Dark at 2net No more Mmm, it's in. There you go. You could also join one or both, preferably, of our message boards. We got two. The one that we mostly hold court on is at betterinthedark.proboard.com. Right. But we also maintain a form on the Earth2.net forms. There you go. So when you go to Earth2.net to download us, you click on the forms and you register, and you can get access not only to us... But the DJ Comics Cavalcade And Bigger on the Inside And Earth2.net
1: The Show A lot of good conversations A lot of good conversations going on there And Bigger in the Inside I've been listening to it a lot lately Especially the Patrick Troughton mm-hmm. era Because yeah. I'm really not that familiar with that area of Doctor mm-hmm. Who I came in well during John yeah. Baker But then I go back as far as John Pertwee Now their discussions If you guys haven't been listening to that Please give it a listen Because now I really want to go out And get some of those Patrick Troughton right. episodes
0: And you got to give them- Credit for the same credit I give to Michael Bailey for him and Jeffrey Taylor doing uh, From Crisis to Crisis. Mm-hmm. That's a long term project yeah, that no. Michael and DW are on. Yeah, you gotta give of, them credit for that. A lot of commitment. We both
1: got live journals. If live they live
0: contact us, there. Derek's is called Derek Ferguson's Notebook. Right, and yours is called Space Space Monkey, Monkey Mafia. Meat Mafia. Also, we should mention that I think by this time it's only a matter of days until. How the West Was Weird shows up. Yeah. Which uh, is uh, from pulpworkpress.com. Yeah, Russ Anderson is in the final stages now, I believe. If you love weird Western tales,
1: this is the book for you. Yeah, we both got stories mm-hmm. in that one. And Tom also has an anthology which from Pulp Work Press. Which will be coming West. out
0: in 2010. Okay. Probably later. called Amazing Alternity Stories, mm-hmm. which will feature... Real Life Personages, recast, has pulp heroes. There's going to be some fun stuff in there. Start
1: saving your milk money hey, now. And we're Charles
0: also Darwin is an interplanetary patrolman. Who wouldn't want to read that? Abe Lincoln is the two-fisted boxer-turned-crime fighter.
1: Start saving your milk money, folks. <laughs> and we should also mention that we, of course, like everybody else these days, are both on Facebook. Yes. So where think, I've been spending way too much time playing Mafia Wars instead of writing like I <laughs> unfortunately. should Unfortunately, Join
0: our family. That thing is addictive, Yeah, man. Although I don't like it when I keep getting whacked by other people.
1: Oh, but how about me? My supposedly good buddy, Jason Cleaver, he went to war with me twice and killed me. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Yes. But anyway, that's the various ways you can get in touch with us. So, until next time, and in fact, if this is
0: broadcast in the order it was meant to be, Next time is November, which means we're going to have the two-part Superman episode coming up. Unless you're trapped in the middle of a 17th century village where you're beset upon by little Jodie Fosters who are driving big tanker trucks and trying to run you over (laughs) while (laughs) the ghost of prom queens are trying to sell you houses that you die to make them younger.
1: Go Go see see that movie!
0: movie. Good night. Good night. God God bless. bless. Have a great Halloween. Thank you. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas D.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Dave DeWanche of the Greek Savants, Brian Ibbett of Coverville, Gray of the Dark Hours, Eric Frome, and the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark would much rather drink out of a goblet than a bunch of cocktail jelly glasses any day. Thank you very much. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to Dark at earth2.net. That's Dark at earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, please remember that if you find a bunch of prom related regalia stuffed in an old case hidden behind some oversized theatrical props, there's a really good reason to leave it the hell alone!